Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, I'm here, and I'm excited to talk about these uh, interesting chapters in Alma with you. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about them. Before we jump into that, we're, we're just more going to have a dialogue about what we've been seeing happening in this country the last month and a half or so. What did you want to address specifically, Derek? There's something I've noticed. See, I've been part of the Black Lives Matter movement since Trayvon Martin, and that was mm-hmm. seven years ago, right? But now it seems like a lot of my white friends, a lot of my conservative friends, a lot of mainstream Americans now are all Black Lives Matter all over their profiles. And I'm like, what's different about this than, you know, the killings that we've seen regularly for the past well, the, for the past decade on video, but then we've got records of all this not on video for centuries. Like, what what's new? What's different? And so why mm-hmm. does there seem to be more of a visible mass of white folks getting on board with racial justice? What's different about this time? Mm-hmm. Probably the biggest thing that we can point to is the pandemic that we're in the middle of. The pandemic has laid bare murderous health and economic inequalities. There's mass unemployment people are indoors. There's a lot more time to think about this stuff and entertain these thoughts. This also happened in Minneapolis. You know, that's another thing. In the past, I think, five years, Minneapolis has seen three other high-profile and controversial incidents. We saw Jamar Mm -hmm. Clark Mm -hmm. back in 2015. We saw Thurman Blevins back in 2018. And most famously, probably, we saw Philando Castile. We also got an election coming up. Like we, I don't think we can really look at this incident outside of the context of the upcoming election. Now, now, Derek, you've heard me talk a lot about these racial issues. You've heard me, and you know, you put yourself in spaces where you hear a lot about this stuff. You hear my exhaustion. Mm-hmm. You hear my cynicism. You hear my frustration and my anger. You hear my growing emotional disinvestment from this country. And I think a lot of white people aren't really able to ignore that at this point. They hear you those same because, things as well. Because of the pandemic, Basically, I feel like, people are getting a taste of some of these things themselves? Is that what you're saying? Or that they have... I, I'm not necessarily saying they're getting a taste of it. I, I, I think the pandemic may be making it harder for them to ignore that. With the election coming up, I feel like people know that America is running out of time to become what it's supposed to become. You also got to look at the proximity and the timing of uh, George Floyd's death. And within a month, like within a month, we had a black trans man die. We had Tony McDade die. We had Ahmaud Arbery die. We saw Breonna Taylor, who died not only minding her own business, but died sleeping. All three of those deaths happened within a month of George Floyd. And then, of course, there's the way that George Floyd died. He died a slow, agonizing, painful death at the hands of a white, apathetic cop, while three other officers watched this dude struggle and plead for breath and call for his mother. Like, right. there is so, there, there's just so much happening at the intersection or at the moment that George Floyd was killed. Like, I, I feel like all of these factors just kind of, converged on George Floyd and created yeah. the perfect spark, the perfect flashpoint for people to wake up. Especially with George Floyd, you can't say, oh, that was like a split-second decision lapse in judgment. You know, you have to make it. This was like right. an eight-minute long exactly. lapse in judgment. You had plenty of yep. time to realize what's going on. This is this is completely yeah. not at all yep. respecting black life. And I think it's obvious, too, in the age of social media, mm-hmm. now everyone 
is aware of this. It reminds me somewhat of the way mm-hmm. that the Emmett Till story really brought attention to a lot of this to to the entire country. I mean, I think we'll be talking about George Floyd for the next 50 years if if change happens. Mhm. You know, yeah, or if change or doesn't change happen, doesn't well, happen like yeah. The what I've noticed is it's not just my social feed that that everyone's starting to become woke on. It's like the New York Times bestseller list. Have you seen which books are at the top? It's like the top 20 books are basically all about racial justice or how to be anti-racist or it's like how to educate yourself, which means people are really taking this in a way that they haven't before, or at least a larger number of white people are taking this in a way that they haven't done before. I haven't seen the list, but I do follow Ibram X. Kendi on social media, and I did notice that two of his books yeah. are the top of some lists. So uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. But even still, the New York Times, They're that's basically uh, all the nonfiction bestsellers, the top 20, like almost all of them are about race and written by people of color. For, for the most part, there's uh, White Fragility by a white lady. But, but my <laughs> point is, we are awakening in a way that we haven't done in the past decade as far as I as long as I've been following the Black Lives Matter movement this is different so mhm hopefully the this is the, the good members of the church will get on board with this and have no reservations about doing the right thing at the right time that's another thing a lot of members of the church are waking up too and you know I don't know how much we've really addressed this but when you see how people have responded to the church's response to these incidents of racism. I mean, first of all, the fact that the church even said something, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember the church ever saying anything in response to a racial incident like this. The last time I heard the church respond to any particular act of racism was a thoughtful wife's Twitter account, and that was relatively small thing, like nobody died, but that was the last thing I saw anything official from the church to address the racism. This is the first time I saw the church make an attempt to address the, quote, recent evidences of racism that are present in America. So even the church, to some degree, is waking up, and its members are too. Well, I remember the Pulse shooting of about four years ago. They made a statement, and the elephant in the room is they didn't even, make, they didn't even mention that it was an LGBT uh, cl- nightclub. I can't remember mm-hmm. if they mentioned that it was predominantly people of color that were the victims. We would, I would have remembered that. So, no, they didn't. Well, see, they should have named that, right? Mm-hmm. They should have named that it was a, a queer space and primarily people of color. Because if you don't see color, then you don't see racism. What's up? What'd you find? Okay, yeah, I just read the statement. They didn't mention that it was queer. Wait, there's like a newsroom statement? And it does say gunmen killed at least 50 people and injured at least 53 more in a nightclub frequented by members of the LGBT community in the early morning hours of Sunday, June 12th. Mm -hmm. Following is a statement issued by the church on Sunday. And then there's a quote of the statement. So in the like in the framing of it, they mentioned it was LGBT. But the the statement in quotes does not mention um, the either the fact that the victims were LGBT or people of color. Mm, got you. It'll be interesting to see how just all of this plays out over the course of the next year with regard to American politics as well as the church in general. I don't think Joanna Brooks's book on uh, Mormonism and white supremacy could have come out at a better time. I'm almost done with it, and it's actually 
like it's done a great job of not only complementing the previous works that have been written about Mormonism and race, but also addressing the big elephant in the room of the effect of American white supremacy on Mormonism to a point where we have kind of been compromised or we had been compromised when it comes to how we respond to incidents of racism. But, you know, that'll Mm -hmm. probably be a conversation for another day. I just feel like a lot of things are converging in an incredible way in order for America to wake up and hopefully the church to wake up as well. Yeah, I just want to say one thing about Joanna Brooks's book, even though I haven't read it, I've looked at some of it. I think one of the most powerful things is a a complete repudiation of this concept of presentism that some people use. Have you heard this term? Dude. Like, yeah, I've heard the term. <laughs> I've heard the term, and I've heard people use it a bunch to justify the things like the priesthood ban and the racism of early church members. Yeah, it's like argument. We, can't, we can't judge people from the past. The past is a different country, and we can't judge. But, but if you, you know, everyone was racist back then. First of all, Black people weren't racist back then, right? They knew, Mm -hmm. they knew, and they were speaking. And the other thing is you had some white people in every generation of the church, and we talked about this last time, I think, stepping out and saying, you know what, this isn't right, this isn't right. So it's not like even the people of their own time were judging them. It's not like, oh, we're judging them from a different time. The people in their own time were speaking out against this. And I'm like, yep. so this completely yep. demolishes this idea of presentism that we have to give Brigham a pass or we have to give anyone a pass because they're from a different time when, especially if you look at the writings of abolitionists, both black and white abolitionists, mm-hmm. it was real clear. I mean, it was real clear. There's yep. no excuse in the 19th century for racism or, or right. well, and certainly not now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for bringing that out because, again, presentism is just, I, I, I hate people trying to, like, justify the racism, justify the spiritual dispossession of my people by saying everybody was racist back then. As if that is, number one, true, or if that mm-hmm. as if that's, mm-hmm. number two, excuses anything, like you said. So th- thanks for bringing that out. Yeah, and you know, they're going to do the same thing in about 40 years with LGBT issues. They're going to say, oh, back in the, like, 2000s, no one in the church knew that anti-gay stuff was wrong. Like, no, we've we've been saying, like, I've got these receipts. Like, my podcast is a testimony that -hmm. will cry out from the ground, (laughs) you know, years later, saying, we were saying this all along. Don't anyone dare 40 years from from now Mm -hmm. say, well... We had no idea. Everyone was homophobic back then because there's a lot of people in the church that are not homophobic. Like, that that's not an excuse. Anything else uh, newsworthy to discuss before we move on to the Come Follow Me? No, let's let's jump into the Come Follow Me. I'd like to hear what you have to say on Alma 23. Or do you have any introductory remarks about these uh, chapters? Not just yet. Before we really dive into it, I just want to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So just by way of context, we're coming towards the conclusion of... Alma and the Sons of Mosiah, their 14-year mission, 
And uh, by all accounts, it's pretty successful. They end up converting entire cities of people, of Lamanites. I, I think within these chapters, we see what to me is the most compelling conversion narrative in all of our texts, in all of the Book of Mormon anyway. And uh, that that's coming from the Lamanites is pretty significant, and we're going to talk about why once we really get into these chapters. But what we're going to see is the Lamanites taking a lot of initiative to really own their conversion and really own their relationship with Christ. We see the power of their conversion, both in how they choose to live out their covenants and how they choose to live out their conversion. So uh, let's just jump right into it because I think the first thing that hits me in the face is actually in the opening verses of this week's Come Follow Me, which is chapter, which is Alma chapter 23, uh, verses one through about five, I think is what we're going to be looking at. At the beginning of this chapter, we are going to see the king of the Lamanites basically declaring religious freedom. It says that he sent a proclamation among all his people that they should not lay their hands on Ammon or Aaron or Omner or Himni, nor either of their brethren who should go forth preaching the word of God in whatsoever place they should be in any part of their land. And uh, more or less just paraphrasing the rest of these verses, we see what's possible when we put, or rather when we apply our faith properly in the political arena. After the king of the Lamanites was converted to the gospel, converted to Christ, he used his power to institute religious freedom throughout the land and to deinstitutionalize discrimination toward Nephites. This is what he says in verse, in verse two, he said that they should not lay their hands on them to bind them or to cast them into prison. Neither should they spit upon them, nor smite them, nor nor cast them out of their synagogues, nor scourge them. Neither should they cast stones at them but that they should have free access to their houses and their temples and their sanctuaries. He literally says, we're going to end jailing the Nephites. We're going to stop chasing them out. We're going to stop killing them simply for existing as Nephites in Lamanite spaces. That's powerful. We see that the gospel played the most important role here in the, the, in the decision-making process, but the government plays a role too here. What gets me is that when the king of the Lamanites received the gospel, he immediately understood the artificiality mm. of the Nephite-Lamanite mm -hmm. distinctions, and we're going to see evidence of that when they go on to change their names. But this is what, this is what Christianity should be making our leaders do. Like they should be putting specific and actionable policy in place that forbids mass incarceration, that forbids things like economic inequality, that that prevents the lynching and killings of black people. Like this is what Christianity is supposed to do for us. Like this is what we mean when we say the gospel has a greater influence on behavior than studies of behavior do. Like this is what the gospel in action is supposed to look like. That's what we're seeing here with the Lamanites. We see that it is making them act in demonstrably anti-racist ways, making sure there's equality among their people and making sure that they are eliminate, eliminating any kind of institutionalized persecutions and discriminations between them and uh, the Nephites. That was the thing that probably stood out most to me just in these opening verses of Alma 23. Is there anything you hear that hear there that you feel is worth bringing out? Yeah, I, I noticed a number of different things. You know, typically we get the Nephite perspective of things, but Mormon has some little editor's seams, I guess, you know, I don't know if that's the right word, but you can kind of tell there's some seams here where things have been stitched together where we get glimpses at the Lamanite religion. And here 
we realize that the Lamanite religion, according to verse 2, they had synagogues, uh-huh. they had temples, and they had sanctuaries. So they had some type of organized religion. And like you said, it brings out like how do we treat immigrants and how we should treat foreigners and how we should treat visitors. And the other thing I want to talk about is what the king of the Lamanites doesn't do. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mandate that everyone become a believer. He doesn't use force or compulsion by law to say, oops, now that I converted, everyone's going to convert too. He says, no, now that I've converted, everyone is free to have religious liberty. So the Book of Mormon is a great civil rights text because you can't compel people to be a true Christian. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lesson that we in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints should learn. Like, let's go back to Proposition 8, right? where many church leaders and members were trying to compel the rest of America to live the principles that were taught by the church of, like, no marriage equality. And that makes no sense in light of this chapter in Alma, because it's like, look, I can't make other people— I can't use the law to make other people follow my religion. That is just basic human rights and basic civil rights and basic religious liberty. Yet, contrary to our principles, people were were trying to not just make rules internally for our right. own church, but make rules for everyone in America to not have access to the same thing that straight couples do. I, this mm-hmm. makes no sense to me. I like that a lot because it really puts into perspective how we should be using excess inequality. He made sure that anything that was available to people was accessible to everybody, regardless of their national origin. I I just really like that. And I really like that you put the name civil rights in the uh, in the text there. Mm -hmm. Moving on. The other thing I wanted to talk about real quick was uh, this interesting this interesting name change that occurs. So basically what happens is in the midst of all this covenant making and reawakening and conversion that uh, the Lamanites are experiencing, they decide that they need a new name. This word, this phrase, anti-Nephi-Lehi, this occurs 12 times in the Book of Mormon. And when it was originally trans- when it was originally transcribed, it is spelled differently. It is spelled in two different ways, about half and half. So six times it is spelled anti with an E, or sorry, anti with an E, so A-N-T-E, and the other six times it's spelled A-N-T-I. And this indicates that there's a reasonable possibility that the anti-Nephi-Lehites should have been called the anti-Nephi-Lehites. And perhaps Joseph Smith pronounced it that way, and people weren't sure whether or not he was saying A-N-T-I or A-N-T-E. So this particular spelling would mean something like the people of Lehi before Nephi. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does it mean to call yourself the people of Lehi before Nephi? And there's a couple of things we can consider. Uh, One is this notion of Abrahamic religions. We use that term Abrahamic religion to describe Christianity, Judaism, and uh, Islam, the three major religions that claim descent through the line of Abraham. To, we, we use it to suggest that at our very core, that Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all part of a greater family and that we should treat each other accordingly. So I, I think that this is close to what the converted Lamanites meant when they called themselves anti-Nephi-Lehites. The term asserts basically a unity in the family of Lehi. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it attempts to erase that great division that occurred during Nephi's time that split the family into, you know, their different groups. The term itself is an attempt to heal the tragic division of, you know, the Book of Mormon people. And that explains, I feel, the most significant thing that the anti-Nephi-Lehites do when they, when they convert to Christianity. And we see this in the later chapters in this particular lesson. We see them bury their weapons deep within the earth and vow to never raise them against their brothers in violence. Uh, and that merits a discussion all of its own. But before we get there, do you, do you have any immediate response to uh, that particular translation of the word? Yeah, I remember, I can't remember which source this, because it's been a while ago, which source that I read that came up with this theory. But someone was saying that basically this population didn't want to call themselves Lamanites anymore, but they wanted to hearken back, like you said, to Lehi as the ancestor. And so by saying that they were anti-Nephi, what they meant is that they were non-Nephites. So they're basically non-Nephite Lehites. And that's just a, a sort of roundabout way, indirectly way of saying Lamanites, but without mentioning mm -hmm. Laman. They could say, we are the, the descendants of Lehi that are not the that descendants not of, of Nephi. And so I think that's very right. much consistent with what, what you were saying. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I just really like that. I think it's really beautiful and it really makes sense of this, uh, this seemingly odd name that they choose to give themselves. Grant Hardy's book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, on page 297, has a really interesting observation. It says that the phrase, the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi, appears eight times between Alma 23-17 and 27-25. And the people of Ammon can be found eight times between Alma 27-26 when the change is made and Helaman 312. So basically, Mormon never goes back to the old name once it's been changed, with the exception of one time in Alma 4311, where both forms appear as a gloss just to make sure that the people know what he's talking about. Mm. And I think that's very interesting that, that once this name has been changed to the people of Ammon, they're never called anti-Nephi-Lehi's anymore. Yeah, I definitely think that's worth uh, mentioning because we had almost a whole half a chapter explaining why they're, ch or I guess, going into telling us that they're going to call themselves the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And then we basically learn that, like two or three chapters later, that the Book of Mormon authors are going to ignore that name they gave themselves and just as Nephites are going to continue to call them the people of Ammon, which I don't know, it, it, it comes off a little bit colonial because that conversion was no small thing. And the things they did as a result of that conversion were no small thing. And I just feel like it's so important to honor that name they gave themselves as a result of those covenants. And of course, as one of the most compelling conversion narratives that probably exists in the entire Book of Mormon. So it's, it's a very curious thing. I, I want to move on to the covenant that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's take in the, uh, in the coming verses. Okay, so should I go ahead and just talk about Alma 24? Oh, yeah, because that's going to come before. Yeah, so here's, well, it is about the covenant. So here's, so here's the first time this covenant is mentioned. It's in Alma 24, verses 17 and 18. Basically, they bury their swords and deepen the earth. And then verse 18 says... And this they did, vouching and covenanting with God, that rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives. I think this is really interesting that they have framed this 
as a covenant that they initiated, the anti the anti Nephi Lehites. So basically, this uh, nonviolence was solidified with a covenant. And we talk a lot about covenant path in the church, covenant path this. It's it's been a real big buzzword. But notice that in the church we talk about a covenant path, not a covenant checklist. If you if you try to check off ordinances or whatever, you have completely missed everything that Jesus lived and taught and died and was raised for. It's not a checklist. Like the whole Sermon on the Mount is all about is not a checklist. But every path in life is different. And the Lord realizes that the covenant path is not a cookie cutter shape. You know, we're all we're all children of God and children are different. And any of you who are parents know that not all your kids need the same thing, or at least not at all the same thing at the same time. And I love what Mormon does with this because Mormon as an editor historian makes this very clear when he contrasts the covenants that the anti Nephi Lehi's made with the covenants that their sons, the stripling warriors, made. And I just want to jump ahead to Alma 53 because Mormon names both covenants within two consecutive verses, which I think that must be intentional as an editor. So here's Alma 53, verses 16 and 17. Behold, it came to pass they had many sons who had not entered into a covenant that they would not take their weapons of war to defend themselves against their enemies. So yet, so there, Mormon mentions the covenant of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, their fathers. And then in verse 17, it says, And they, the sons, entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites, yea, to protect the land unto the laying down of their lives. Yea, even they covenanted that they never would give up their liberty. And it should not escape anyone's notice. These two groups of people actually made diametrically opposite covenants. One mm. group covenanted never to use arms, and they buried them in the ground. The other group covenanted to take up arms in defense of their people. And not just any group. This is their children. Their children. So it's the same ethnicity, the same religion, the same mm -hmm. the same body, the same community. Even mm -hmm. within the same community, you've got different people operating under different covenants. And mm -hmm. Mormon, as the editor historian, commemorates both groups for keeping their covenants. He doesn't decide one is wrong and one's right. Mm -hmm. But he commemorates them both, despite their strikingly different covenants. Now, what right. does this have to do with likening the scriptures unto ourselves? Like I Speak said, on it. different people in the church are going to be under different covenants. And look, LGBT people and single people in the church may make different covenants than other groups in the church. And mm -hmm. we should be celebrated for them because we're in a different situation. You know, two women may covenant to be faithful to each other for life. Or two mm -hmm. men may covenant to each other for life. Or an individual may covenant to remain celibate, and which is consistent with, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Mm -hmm. And no one should complain like, oh, your covenant is different than mine. We're one body with many members. We're diversified, and we're not all under the same covenants. And I think mm -hmm. clearly, if you know anything about anything that you've learned in primary is that God is all about the one. The plan of salvation is tailored to the one, the one lost sheep, the one child. You know, I think this gives us a precedent to say we should never take a simplistic or authoritarian approach to this term covenant path. This path right. is going to be as individual as every individual child of God. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. My inability to see that initially was uh, part of my initial instinct to be a bit critical 
of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's for their choice to go out the way they did. It seemed irrational to me to go willingly to death without defending yourself when the option is there to do so. But I also realized that because of what you're saying, Derek, that's not really an appropriate assessment for me to make. I don't have to understand completely that covenant. I don't have to understand it at all, really, because it's not really any of my business. At least twice in the verses leading up to this moment in the story, the Lamanites address the sins and murders they've committed, as well as their effort to repent, along with the statement that they've done, that what they've done was all they could do. And perhaps as a people, mm-hmm. they felt like they were given another opportunity to show their penitence. I'm not entirely sure, but what I do know is that while this was something the anti-Nephi-Lehi's ended up doing together, that decision was very personal to them. The text even takes a moment to highlight that this is what they have to do in their view. That's what the scripture says, quote, in their view. This isn't something Mm -hmm. that God asked them to do at all, but something that they made the decision to do as a token of their commitment, at least not that we can see. We do not have to understand that, and it may not be our place to try to understand their specific struggle and wrestle with their repentance process because there's not there's no way we can really understand it with just this text. But what I do understand is how my process of repentance is very different from someone else's. Mm-hmm. My faith journey is going to be different from someone else's. And I had struggles, for example, growing up. I've talked on more than one occasion about you know, my struggles with pornography as a, as a youth. And as a consequence, there are some things that I do as an adult now and that I've done all throughout my recovery process that a lot of people don't really understand. Things that God hasn't necessarily required me to do, but things that I felt to do in an effort to, to really repent. You know, there are certain things I don't do on dates. There are certain places that I don't go. And people might regard those things as too much or unnecessary. But to me, they are very necessary. These are things that mm-hmm. I have to do myself to protect myself or to repent or to keep myself in a space where I feel like me and God are good. So again, this doesn't compare to what the what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did, but it helped me contextualize their covenant to the point where I don't really question their decision to do what they did. I can understand and I can appreciate as somebody who is an individual, as somebody with my own struggles, who has my own demons, who has my own path and journey to God, that I just have to accept the difference of people's journeys and I'm not in any position to judge other people's journeys. Yeah, and that's a really great point because we're all on an individual walk with God and some people may need more structure, some people may need less, some people may need completely opposite covenants from what others are taking and this should blow out of the water any idea of well I don't see color or I don't see gender, I don't see any of these things because yes we're all alike unto God But the only way to implement that is by noticing the individuality of what different groups need. And Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely Mm -hmm. valid to name that this particular people has this particular need. That is the gospel. For the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, apparently this move towards nonviolence was what they needed. I'm very much a passionate defender of nonviolence, not just ethically, because I don't feel comfortable bearing arms against some other child of God, but also because it's strategic. And let's look at Alma 24, verses 23 and 24 on this. Basically what happened is the Lamanites then attacked their own brethren, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and they saw that they didn't run away from the sword. They actually absorbed the violence, much like you know direct action in the non-violence movement does. And they didn't run away. They just took and absorbed the, 
the perishing of the sword. And then verse 24 says, this is, get this. Now, when the Lamanites saw this, they did forbear from slaying them. And there were many whose hearts had swollen in them for those of their brethren who had fallen under the sword, for they repented of the things which they had done. And I think that's interesting that they're, that their nonviolent approach to willingly essentially turn the other cheek and become martyrs for their covenants had a profound change on their own enemies. That mm-hmm. then the enemies had, a, well, you know, the, the reason that nonviolent resistance works is if your enemy has a conscience, right, right? Right. If they don't have a conscience, they'll just keep killing you. Right. But it sparked something in them that strategically was useful in converting their brethren, the other Lamanites who were attacking them. And you know what's interesting about this is we should note that we have many heroes in the Book of Mormon who are people of color. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's and their children, the stripling warriors, are both of Lamanite ancestry, and they are ethnically other from the standpoint of the Nephite narrators. And they're celebrated. I think now, obviously, there's a sense in which all of the people in the Book of Mormon are people of color. There's no Europeans in the Book of Mormon. Like, name me a European in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> you know, they're all people of color. Well, I like that a lot. First of all, you highlighted uh, the profound effect of nonviolence on the Lamanites. And something else that's worth mentioning is that the author of this text takes time to say that the men, the amount of people that converted to the gospel afterward uh, outnumbered the number of people who perished mm, that day. Mm-hmm. That just speaks to the power of their nonviolence. But also in the later chapters, the Lord tells the people to get out because the um, I, I think it's the Amalekites that they're called. They don't seem to have a conscience. He actually says Satan has a great hold on their hearts. And if they try to mm-hmm. do this mess with the Amalekites that they tried to do with the rest of the Lamanites, they're going to die and nothing's going to change. So the Lord actually tells them to get out. And the Nephites... And the Nephites help to resettle them. This is a refugee text. Like, we should absolutely be on board with refugees. You know, I want to jump ahead to something that's very interesting in Alma 26. Because this gets to the question as, was this whole missionary project, was this a colonial project? Or was there some authenticity and respectful engagement of a different culture? And I can see a little evidence on both sides. The Lamanites had been ignored for 500 years by the Nephites, which itself is a problem. Mm-hmm. But then Ammon brings hope to them and, and spiritually integrity to them. And one thing that's important to note is that the missionaries do not remake the anti-Nephi-Lehi's exactly into their own image. You know, this covenant right. of nonviolence is something that was native to their to them. Yes, they it, came up with that. The Nephites never had pacifism and not a covenant of nonviolence as part of their culture. So mm-hmm. in some sense, the salvation of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's allowed them to bloom and blossom into their fullest, healthiest potential. And that's the opposite of colonization and exploitation. Yes. And, you know, let's go back to what it says in Alma 26, verse 13. Ammon says, Behold, how many thousands of our brethren. Notice he calls them our brethren, which which is a little bit different than a colonial attitude of like, oh, I'm going to conquer them. It's like, this is us. Behold, how many thousands of our brethren he has loosed from the pains of hell, and they are brought to sing redeeming love. And this because of the great power of his word, which is in us. And the fact that they they sing redeeming love doesn't seem to be an oppressed or colonized people exactly. 
And here's the other thing to note is that the sons of Mosiah came in there with limited resources, limited numbers of people, and limited power. They're the ones that were at the disadvantage. They were the ones that were mistreated and imprisoned and all these other things. They weren't right. coming with power as a colonizer does. So right. so that's something. Um, and this whole idea of calling them, calling the Lamanites their brethren actually comes from a revelation from the Lord. It says in Alma 26, verse 27, go amongst this is the Lord speaking. Go amongst thy brethren, the Lamanites, and bear with patience thine afflictions, and I will give unto you success. Mm -hmm. So there's some evidence that it's not really colonial, but, you know, there's no black and white in the real world. Like, right. everything's complicated. And so on the other hand, the sons of Mosiah do, in some sense, try to fix the Lamanites, and that, and that could be problematic. A lot of people are inclined to, to read the Book of Mormon in a very black and white, all or nothing way. But here's here's a final piece of evidence that that seems to, to characterize the mission as not colonization. Because here's what happens when the Nephites, when they learn about the repentance of the Lamanites, they receive them as equals. Even when the Lamanites offered to be slaves in compensation for their mm -hmm. generations of aggression against the Nephites. Here's what it says in Alma 27, verses 8 and 9. We will go down unto the brethren, and we will be their slaves, and we will repair unto them the many murders and sins which we have committed against them. But Ammon said, It is against the law of our brethren, which was established by my father, that there should be any slaves among them. And this is, you know, King Benjamin's original decree for the abolition of slavery, reinforced by Mosiah's recapitulation of the abolition of slavery. So like they actually had a concept of, you know, war crimes and just treatment of the enemy and and then seeing them as their neighbor and not as someone to conquer and exploit but someone to welcome in in Christ as as one people. If I could add another piece of evidence that I saw in uh, chapter 26 uh, verse 33, this is right after uh, Ammon relates the covenant that uh, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's made. He asks, mm. has there been so great love in all the land? Behold, I say unto you, nay, there is not, even among the Nephites. Like at this point in the story, Ammon is basically saying that the Lamanites, in terms of their quote-unquote righteousness and faithfulness and conversion to Christianity, I suppose, it's even greater than that of the Nephites. When you embrace what I suppose is the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ and you look at their progress as a people and what they were able to become as a result of it and that they became more than the people, or I guess more in some sense than the people who introduced them to it. Uh, I also see that as one of the evidence that this was not really a colonial thing, but that this was something legitimately that they legitimately shared in an effort to make their lives better. And it became better beyond what even they were able to create with the same resource. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And this gets into this idea of missionary work. If you do it right, it gives you God's heart. It it gives you this really expansive and glorious and capacious understanding that God loves all people where they are. Mm. And that's the whole point of missionary work. And I'd like to quote here one of the I think one of the most important declarations in the entire Book of Mormon is in Alma twenty nine, verse eight. For behold, the Lord doth grant unto all nations of their own nation and tongue to teach his word. Yea, in wisdom, all that he seeth fit that they should have. Therefore we see that the Lord doth counsel in wisdom 
according to that which is just and true. So basically, we have this declaration that God grants individually according to what people can understand in their nation, in their tongue, the truth that he wants them to have for that time and place. And this declaration is a great foundation for our missionary work and our interfaith dialogue because we don't have to say derogatory or defamatory things about other world religions, right? We don't have to say that Muhammad was a false prophet. We don't have to say that Confucius was an idiot. We don't have to say that the Christian, the other Christian churches are, are completely evil because God throughout time, even during the great apostasy when the Lord didn't send prophets exactly, he sent poets and teachers and artists and musicians and biblical scholars to keep the flame alive until the restoration. And that should be respected, not defamed. Also, this declaration here in Alma 29.8 shows an element of relativism, or at least responsiveness on the part of the Lord for ministering to different peoples according to their actual situation, according to their language, according to their time. And this is parallel to what I said about appropriately differentiated covenants earlier. I also hear in this something that is said earlier in Alma chapter 26. There's a similar declaration. This is Alma 26 verse 37. It says that we see that God is mindful of every people, whatsoever land they may be in. Mm. Yea, he numbereth his people, and his bowels of mercy are over all the earth. Now this is my joy and my great thanksgiving. Yea, and I will give thanks unto my God forever. This actually harkens back to something you said uh, much earlier in uh, in this episode. I, I just felt like it was worth bringing out again while we're talking about declarations because this is God yet again reaffirming. God is mindful of everybody, of their particular needs and of their particular situations and is willing to minister to them according to those needs, according to those circumstances, mm-hmm. according to their time and their place. We've already spent some time talking about what that means for us as members of the church and what that means at our particular time and place. But I just wanted to use a uh, scripture to, again, uh, reaffirm that. Yeah, and I think it's important to name that both of these texts that we just quoted are the product of reflecting on a, on a successful mission, right? Like I said, <laughs> a, a mission really, when it's done right, brings you God's heart for all people. And I think we especially when we're celebrating black saints, we need to keep that in mind, that um, God has something special for all people. And, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but there's a first presidency statement from 1978 that talks about uh, world religions. I can't quote it off the top of my head, but it basically says, kind of like what I was saying, that God has sent good teachers to various peoples, and it even names, I think, Muhammad and Confucius, and it says we've got respect for world religions, and God gave to people the light and truth for that time and place according to their own language. I don't think a lot of Mormons know about this this statement, but it's important to look up and learn. Right. Well, that's all I have about come follow me. Me as well. So uh, let's go ahead and transition into the housekeeping items real quick. But before we do that, just wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. 
Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes on lyceum.fm or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can also find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. There's also a couple of events uh, that we want to make you guys aware of. Uh, one that has actually already happened. This was the Black Lives Matter to Christ fireside. This occurred on Juneteenth. And uh, you can see the replay of it uh, from their actual Facebook page. There's a Black Lives Matter to Christ Facebook page. It was also shared on the Black LDS Legacy page. If you were not able to catch it live, you can certainly catch the replay on those pages. We also want you guys to know that Rev. Dr. Fatima Saleh is having a six-week-long online workshop focusing on the impact of racism within the Christian church. And I don't think I got to tell you guys how much of a treat this is going to be. If you heard our episode with Dr. with Rev. Dr. Fatima Saleh and Margaret Olson Hemming when they were on the show, you know what a powerful speaker she is, and what like this is this is her lane. This is what she does. We don't have a lot of theologians in our LDS tradition to begin with. And the fact that she is also a black woman and also somebody who spends the majority of her days talking about this intersection, like this is a real treat for you guys. So we'll be sure to put a link to that on our Facebook page and probably one in the show notes as well. So you guys can get more details about that online course as well as a sign up for it there. Uh, Again, that is the online workshop Spit in Mud, the messy miracle of seeing Christian racism by Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh. Did I miss anything, Derek? Yeah, I want to mention this petition. So BYU has come Ah, out with a uh, committee on race and inequality. And there's a number of people of color, and I think a few token white people on it too, but there's no Native American representative on this panel. And I think given our history, you know, with, with Native Americans, you know, BYU sits on Native American land. And historically had larger numbers of Native American students. Given the current situation, if we're going to do something on race, we really need to have a Native American representative here. And there's a petition here. And so support this position. BYU's Committee on Race and Inequality needs a Native American representative. And we can give you this change.org link. And this petition is native-led, native-publicized. And I was directly asked by an indigenous person to publicize this, and so I'm amplifying that voice. And so I want everyone to to go and support that. Excellent. And uh, the last thing I think I got here, Derek, is just the information about our GLOW page. We've been trying to sustain the work of the podcast for a while and improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone. So we will drop a link to our GLOW page if you want to financially support us in any way. It's glow.fm slash beyondtheblock. That's glow, G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyondtheblock. If you support us in that way, you contribute anything, you get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback and ideas for the show, access to our notes, and uh, and a lot more. If you don't have any coins to throw at us, you can simply share that page with other people and then let us know and we will let you be part of that community anyway. We just want this to be as accessible as possible to anyone who wants to be involved uh, with us on this level. 
So for those of you who have already contributed or shared our page, we greatly appreciate it. It's helped us a ton. And uh, we hope to continue growing and continue adding more great things to the show. We're going to, we plan on doing a lot more in the future. Some things are starting to materialize, and uh, we can't wait to share those with y'all. But uh, again, thank you guys for uh, your support thus far. Thank you to our friends, Tamara Kemsley, for doing the audio editing of the show, and also David Doyle, who has been editing our transcripts and helping make the show accessible in that way. If anyone would like to help us with our social media, um, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, reach out to us. Because imagine me, a, a theologian that's academic and boring. How am I going to do social media? Like, yeah. <laughs> so we don't. So we, we need help on that front. Like, we if need you guys someone. Are out we here, need someone cool. Yeah, someone cool, young, someone that's and actually preferably. cool and actually funny. If you know how to do anything with a podcast on TikTok, hit us up. Shoot us an email at beyondtheblockpodcast at gmail.com. And I think same with YouTube. I think if we, we put together some like short five to seven minute really shareable videos that condense some of our you know, pieces into accessible chunks, that could really be shared widely. So that's something to think about. Yes, in the future, because we can't quite afford the production level that that, is, that, that requires, but that is on the docket for the future. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Derek? Nope. Thanks, everyone, for your time, and thanks for listening to us. Thank you, guys, till we meet again next week.